The Old Testament reading this morning is um, is Malachi 3 verses 1 through 4. It can be found on page 954 in the Pew Bible. 959. 959. Um, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant, whom you desire, will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silk. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness, and the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord, as in days gone by, as in former years. This is the word of the Lord. The New Testament reading this morning is Luke chapter 1, and it is verses 57 through 80, or is it 68 through 79? Which ones would you like me? I can. 50, 57? All right, I will do, I will do 57 um, through 80, so we'll have John the Baptist is born in addition to others. Um, and that is on page 1026, I believe, in your pew Bible. Um, John the Baptist is born. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. But his mother spoke up and said, No, he is to be called John. They said to her, There is no one among your relatives who has that name. Then they made signs to his father to find out what he would be like, what, what he would like to name the child. He asked for a writing tablet, and to everyone's astonishment he wrote, His name is John. Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue was loosed, and he began to speak, praising God. The neighbors were all filled with awe, and throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all these things. Everyone who heard his wondering, his, this wondering about it, asking, What then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the land of all who hate us, 
to show mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he lived in the desert until he appeared publicly to Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Just rearranging some stuff out here. Uh, you know, I, I realized recently how much of a mystery this whole area is to so many of you when. Uh, we were doing, as a council, uh, we were looking at the annual budget, as we do every August, and there was a line for <clears throat> guest preachers for the whole year, and it was, you know, something like $2,000, but it was listed as pulpit supply, and somebody said, why are we spending $2,000 on pulpit supply? Like, what is, what is in the pulpit? <laughs> That, that we need to spend $2,000, like what kind of water are they drinking up there? And Anyway, there's not much, there's like some papers and a stool, that's it, and a cup of water. So, all right, uh, we are going to dive deeper into the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth in Luke chapter 1, uh, which I'm very excited about, um, but let's... Let's uh, lean a little deeper into our worship and uh, our ability to hear God's word as we uh, pray first together. So please pray with me. God, you are a God who the scriptures tell us is love. And God, we confess that sometimes we can see that, sometimes we can sense that, sometimes we believe that, and yet at other times it feels like a stretch. God, through our hearing of the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth and uh, this birth of John the Baptist, whose own life points us to the person of Jesus, we, uh, we ask that you would remind us again that you are love, and that you are a tender and compassionate God, and that even in the darkness of our hardship, 
seasons of difficulty, you are faithful. So speak, Lord, and may we, your people, have ears to listen. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Just a sip of my $200 water. So we are in week two of Advent, uh, and our theme again this year is longing for the light. And uh, if you know anything about Advent, you know it's these, these four Sundays leading up to Christmas, to the coming of the Christ child, in which we enter into darkness. We enter into the season of darkness because we have hope that the darkness is only temporary, because we know that light will come. So it's a season of hopeful anticipation, but it's also a season of waiting. It's a season where we allow ourselves to name the reality of darkness in the world and in our own experience of God. And to sit in that without this anxious need to fix it right away. I grew up uh, in a more evangelical church that was very uncomfortable talking about darkness. Talking about hard things or speaking of any sort of experience of the Christian life that perhaps could be taken as reflecting poorly on God. And so we had to kind of walk around pretending that, that the experience of God was never one of God's absence, but that it was always this happy, clappy sort of, God is good. And of course, God is good, but, uh, but as we said two weeks ago, life is hard, and those two things are both true. And so we're going to look at the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth this morning, uh, and uh, I hope find comfort in their struggle, their struggle in the hardships of life, their struggle in faith, uh, and be reminded again, uh, again, that two things are true, that sometimes life is struggle, and also God remains a God who is loving and faithful and good. And so we're going to do that in three movements going through the story today. Uh, we're going to talk about doubt in the darkness, mercy in the darkness, and then waiting in the darkness. So, uh, the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth, and I, yeah, sorry for the confusion, that's totally my fault. I, I, I changed the, the scripture reading, like, towards the end of the week after it was already uh, submitted. Uh, but I think it's important for us to kind of zoom out and not just read Zechariah's song, but more of the context. And so we got a little bit more of the scene, but just to kind of zoom out to give you the whole scene in case uh, you're not uh, up on it yourself. Luke begins his gospel by uh, the short preface... And then he shifts to these two characters of Zechariah and Elizabeth. Zechariah is a priest. Elizabeth is his wife. And they're described as humble, faithful people whose lives, from God's perspective, are blameless. And the text notes that they 
had struggled with infertility their whole lives because Elizabeth is barren. And uh, now they are older in years. They are beyond childbearing years. And uh, Zacharias, he, he, uh, as a part of a a priest uh, of a local synagogue, he does his annual rotation going to Jerusalem to to serve in the temple, uh, which, if you remember, is where God... God's presence is particularly focused in this uh, epoch of salvation history. And they cast lots, and uh, Zechariah gets the lot to enter not just into the temple, but into the holy place, which is just one layer removed from the holy of holies, which only uh, the high priest one day a year can enter into. And so he... uh, you know, we sometimes, I think, miss this when we read this story without all this context, but he's now close as he's ever been and ever will be to the holy presence of God. And he's in the, the holy place in the temple alone, and all these other priests and worshipers are outside, and he has this experience of the angel of the Lord appearing at the right hand of the altar, and like people usually respond when they encounter an angel in the scriptures, he's just struck with, with fear, and the angel comforts him with, do not be afraid. I'm not here to, to judge, I'm here to bring good news. And the angel tells Zechariah that God has heard their prayers and that they're going to have a baby. And that this baby will be a precursor to the Holy One of God. And Zechariah responds with this. He asks the angel, it says, How can I be sure of this? I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. It's this honest admission of a little bit of, uh, of doubt, of hesitancy to immediately cling to the promise of God. It's a response of suspicion. Even though there's this divine angel who's speaking on God's behalf, we find out right after that this is Gabriel one of God's archangels, one of the, a personal servant of the Lord who's shown up throughout the Old Testament, and who will soon come to marry. But Zechariah struggles to trust the promise. And I, I kind of, I get that. I, I'm sympathetic with him. Because when your experience of, of prayer for so many years has been praying and praying and praying, for something that seems so good to you and that you would think would be something that seems good to God, and yet your experience is one of unanswered prayer. It's hard to always believe in the promise that God does want to bless you with good things. And again, the text describes Zechariah and Elizabeth, they're they described as faithful both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands 
and decrees blamelessly. These were people who went to church every week. He was a pastor, so to speak, right? He's a priest of God's people. And yet, I find so much comfort in this story in that it names the darkness of even the experience of good, godly people. What do we make of doubt in the darkness? I think, uh, you know, one of, the, one of the downsides of the kind of background that I grew up in where we don't talk about, we don't name some of the, these hard experiences of God's absence or apparent absence, we should say, uh, is that it really sets us up for disappointment. And I see over and over again people who grow up with this kind of understanding that God's goodness, God's faithfulness equates to my life is always going to go according to plan, leaves one with a a moment of just a rude awakening that happens when all of a sudden life no longer goes according to plan. That happened to me when I was, uh, I think, probably 18 years old, when I... uh, you know, life was going to plan, and then I went off to college, and my girlfriend dumped me. You can go, oh, Tony, I'm so sorry. Well, that's, you know, and, and like looking back now, it's 18, and it's like, that's pretty common. I should have expected that, and yet it was so crushing. <laughs> it was so crushing for me, and it just led to this kind of downward spiral, especially my first year in, in college in Madison, Wisconsin, of wondering, like, okay, God, can you fix this? Can you make her like me again? Or, you know, uh, and the more I prayed into the questions and the more my experience of God was one of absence through that season, the, the, the more desperate I, I became for God to give me some kind of comfort and the more the lack of that comfort it, 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 you know, I sometimes think of it as it's almost this sort of double pain on top of whatever the initial grief or loss or disappointment you might feel. There's this sort of secondary layer of, but God, why didn't you protect me from this? God, you love me, right? Not a hair shall fall from my head. You are my heavenly Father who wants good things for me. You are faithful. You are good. You want to bless me. I believe all these things, and yet why... Isn't this getting fixed? Why is my experience of you still one of absence and darkness and loneliness and pain? If you love me, God, then why are things so bad right now? And this was just, you know, I mean, this wasn't even a real crisis, right? This is like white people problems, like my girlfriend broke up with me, otherwise life was good, and uh, maybe this, this framing of God and this expectation of God and God's goodness equating to everything going according to plan all the time is maybe a, a problem of privilege, but it can be just soul-crushing. And I use the word darkness here, this experience of darkness, because if you've gone through that, and if, if you haven't yet, if you're still young enough that you haven't had your life fall apart and no longer go according to plan, 
don't worry, you'll, you'll have that at some point. I can, I can guarantee that for you. Uh, and my you know, heart doesn't, it aches for you. I don't, I don't want to see you struggle in that way. And yet at the same time, I know that it's, it actually turns out to be a gift, as we'll see. But when you feel like you can no longer trust life as you see it, or can no longer trust God as you understand God. It's an experience of, of darkness. And when something really good finally does come your way, like here it finally does for Zechariah and Elizabeth, their prayers finally answered, it can leave us, the hardship of the unanswered prayer over time can leave us hesitant to allow ourselves to trust it. And so, of course, Zechariah responds to God's holy angel, God's messenger with, but Elizabeth and I are really old. The angel then responds, I am Gabriel. Like, do you know who this message has come? Like, do you know who I am? I stand in the presence of God, and I've been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens. Because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Zechariah doubts, and the angel says, because of this, you will you will not be able to speak for nine months. And I, I also wonder about, you know, a few verses later when he returns home and Elizabeth does become pregnant. It, there's this interesting note in the text that after this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. Uh, you know, commentators don't know what to make of that. They say, you know, that, that wasn't a common practice that's probably as odd then, if not more so, than it would be today. Uh, and Luke doesn't tell us why, but I can't help um, you know, and, and these commentaries, most of them are written by these white guys who are like, why would that be? We have no clue why a woman would stay in seclusion for five months. And yeah, I can't help but wonder why, uh, you know, if... Perhaps this is a sign of Elizabeth's own struggle to accept this good news, this promise of the angel of this child. That, you know, typically people will wait three months and then maybe share publicly. She, she, for five months, she stays hidden. And, you know, again, I'm just, I'm just one of these white dudes commentating, you know, commenting on these things. But I can't help but wonder how vulnerable it must have felt for her at three months or four months pregnant to go out and to encounter all the people that, you know, the text then mentions that she had experienced her barrenness as one of shame, public shame, and there's so much socioculturally wrapped up in that. Uh, How vulnerable that might have been. And if in her her five months of seclusion, perhaps, there's a, 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 a hiding and maybe even a doubt, a hesitancy to trust God's promise. Which, again, I, I get. And yet, 
the angel goes on and responds. When he says to Zechariah, you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words. He says, but they will come true at their appointed time. Zechariah, you you will be quiet for nine months, but this promise will still come true. God will still bless you in this way, even though you doubt this. Which brings us to our, our second movement. From doubt in the darkness to mercy in the darkness. You know, it's interesting how uh, commentators wrestle with this question of, you know, was this nine months of silence, is it, is it a punishment because he doubted? Or, or is, he, is he perhaps given the very sign that he asked for? Which is something I had never thought about before. He says, how will I know this will be true? We are so far along in years. And he says, because of this, you will not be able to speak for nine months. And perhaps, some commentators say, perhaps he's getting the, the, the sign that he's asking for. Uh, and yet, yet, at the same time, it also says, because of this, you'll be quiet. It, and it seems like, again, two things are true. Both that there is a sort of rebuke in his doubt, and yet also a, a gift in it. And, and here's the thing that we come to, I think, see when we get that gift of a little bit of distance or quiet enough to step out of our situation, or sometimes this can only come through the gift of time, we come to see that all of that, that bad theology about God is only good because, you know, our lives always go to plan, that God is good equals life is easy, is something that never was promised in the scriptures. Jesus never promised that. The the prophets never, if anything, there's a strong thread of to follow God, to follow Christ in a world of violence, to choose the way of love, will bring all sorts of hardship on us. We follow the crucified one, after all, the one whose own life was marked with suffering. And not suffering that's incompatible with, with joy. Hebrews tells us it was for the joy set before him that Christ endured the cross. It's not this dour kind of faith. Jesus is joyful and peaceful and loving and the life of the party. And yet, his life is full of suffering and hardship and struggle and even involves his, his own murder. And sometimes the gift we wait for comes, but it comes not in our timing. And after nine long months of quiet, lots of time to reflect, there's this turn in the narrative where, as the passage was read to us, Zechariah And Elizabeth finally have their child. John the Baptist is born. And the friends, the relatives, the neighbors come around. And eight months after that, there's this, this, you know, this circumcision and this point where they choose to name him. And there's some question over what the child will be named. And all the the friends and relatives are saying, are you going to name him Zechariah or name him, you know, after a grandfather or, or some ancestor, which was traditional. 
And she says, no, his name will be John. And they, they motion to him. And he writes out, they give him something to write on, and he writes out, his name is John. And it says that the, the people are amazed. And there's so much in that little phrase, his name is John. He doesn't, know, you know, notice that he doesn't say his name will be John. He says his name is John. And reflected in that is just this little nuance of obedient submission, that he He's not saying, I choose to name him. We've chosen to name him John. It's, his name has been given to us. It is John. And we see this arc in, in his story, in Zechariah's, this movement of him from this, this speculation nine months earlier to one of faith, that then his mouth is opened, his tongue is loosed, and this beautiful song emerges from him in which... He praises God and he recalls Israel's story and how God, in this moment, through preparing the way for the coming one, through giving the gift of John the Baptist, and and three months later will come the gift of the birth of Jesus. God is coming through on all of God's promises going all the way back to Abraham and the universal mission of God's people to, to be a blessing to all people. You know, something we miss, I think, when we, in our Bible, going from the Old Testament to the New Testament, it's just a flip of a page, and all of a sudden it's, oh, now we're in the New Testament. But we have to remember that this comes after three or four hundred years of silence. There's this, what scholars call the intertestamental period in which uh, Israel's experience of God has been one of absence. And so it's not just Zechariah and Elizabeth and a long life of, of infertility that we're talking about, but it's the experience of him as a priest of, of God's people not having heard from a single prophet in hundreds of years. And it's into this moment that God and God's appointed time, the text says, kairos, this, this Greek word that talks about God's special timing, that the gift finally comes. And this beautiful song of praise emerges from Zechariah. He's had nine months of being quiet to think about these things. And he speaks of, uh, among other things, there's this phrase, the tender mercy of God. He, he reflects on salvation history and how God has been faithful. He talks about David and Abraham and the fulfillment of God's promises. And then he pivots to the child. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. And he talks uh, of the role and, and the coming of Christ, and he says, this is because of the tender mercy of our God. It's interesting that, you know, there's two parts of the song, and this, this phrase, the tender mercy of God, comes right in the middle of the second, which there's 26 words before it, 26 afterwards. The tender mercy of our God. And if you look up, you know, the, a literal translation, it's something like, because of the bowels of God's compassion. 
or in the Wycliffe version, the, uh, what is it, the intestines of God's compassion. Uh, you know, it, it, all of this, God coming through and giving the gifts, not in the time we necessarily want, but in God's good timing, flows out of the guts of God's feelings towards us. It's this affective language that has to do with God's deepest self. That in the center of this whole story of what's happening and the unfolding of God's plans is a heart, as we might say in today's language, of a loving, good, and gracious God. And perhaps even the, the darkness, even the waiting, is a part of God's mercy in and of itself. I've found that to be true in my own life again and again, that the hardships I've gone through, the, the long seasons of God's absence, turn out to be actually the, the crucible, the, the, the space in which God shapes me and grows me in the ways that I've been praying for and longing for. I think of all the ways that uh, we go through these hard experiences and and in the midst of them, we, we just would do anything to fix this struggle or to get out of this or for what we long for to come now. And yet, with some distance, we can look back and how often is it the case that, you know, I, I asked someone this week, uh, a friend of mine, not someone who's part of this church, but a friend of mine who's a little bit older than me and who he uh, and his wife, they had two kids and then they struggled with getting pregnant again when they were trying for a third kid. And it was uh, five or six years before they were able to have a third kid who's now reaching college age. And uh, they said it's some of the hardest years of their lives and, and yet when I asked them, when I asked him, you know, do you, if you could write that story over again, would you write it differently? And he said, no. Because I, I have a whole different appreciation. He said, I don't have any favorites of my kids, but there's something special about this third child, our daughter, that there's this, uh, a gratitude and a depth to our love for her that wouldn't be there. Um, and this isn't always the case. And I, and I don't mean to equate, you know, ho- when horrible things happen, it's horrible. And we need to name that as horrible. There's real evil in the world that is evil, and we need to not confuse that at all. And yet at the same time, God is always at work in us through even the hard things. And there's mystery there, right? And to be sure, sometimes we create our own problems. Sometimes our, our, our drama in life is self-inflicted. But sometimes we're praying and we're longing and we're going to church and we're doing all the things that good Christians do. And yet there's still that sense of God's absence. And if you find yourself in that season, I just want to encourage you by saying... Perhaps even in this, there is God's mercy. We talked about doubt in the darkness, mercy in the darkness. 
Let's close by talking about waiting in the darkness. And this, this is the hard part. Uh, how do we live when we're in this season of darkness? I, uh, I've talked before about, I, I see an ADD coach. Um, her name is Dr. Tamara Rosier, and she's fantastic. I highly recommend her if any of you are, uh, you know, struggling with ADD and would like a coach. And uh, I met with her this week, and we're on Zoom, and I just asked, you know, as we sat down, um, Tamara, how are you? And she said, uh, good. She said, Today's, today is a good day, which is nice, because yesterday was a hard day. And, and I, you know, just followed up by asking, like, what makes today a good day and yesterday a hard day? And she said, well, I'm kind of embarrassed to say it, but actually the difference boils down to the, the sun is out today. I think this was uh, when, Thursday, maybe when we met. And she's like, I'm embarrassed to say it because I feel like I should have more control over my environment, you know, or like, but really the sunshine just makes all this difference. Um, and I just finished reading this Advent devotional called All Creation Waits that talks about Advent and this time of year in which, you know, we approach the winter solstice and it gets to be the darkest, you know, December 21 is the darkest day of the year and then we start to turn around and how Advent syncs us with the rhythms of creation and this pattern of darkness. Um, And so we started talking about light and darkness and how to cope and I, I asked her, you know, so how do you cope with the winter, having, you know, seasonal affective disorder and struggling with uh, just dark days? Because we live in Michigan, after all, and there's a lot of those in winter. And she said this, and, and uh, you know, I grabbed my pencil because I was like, do you care if I write this down? This is perfect for my sermon. She said, by all means, go ahead. You can quote me. So I have her permission. But she said this. I said, how do you cope with winter? And, and she, talked about the, she started talking about the rhythms of packing up for the fall, putting all the patio furniture away. And she said, here's what I do. I allow myself to feel the absence of light rather than to fight it. And I'm able to embrace it for what it is. I'm able to embrace that absence of light, to feel it, and to remind myself that the light will come again. It's this act of remembering that winter is just for a time. And I said, like, can you give an example of that? She said, one of the ways I remind myself is, is by watching for the little signs in the darkness that keep me moving. Like she said, you know, we live, like, where we can see a lake, and... I look out my winter at I, I look out my window at the lake, and though this time of year it it appears like everything is dead. When I'm looking for it, what I start to see is that there's still life out there. It's just life in a different season. That's. A pretty good summary, I think, of the practice of faith. So much of the Old Testament and and into the New Testament, too, has this this word, remember, 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 that keeps coming up. Deuteronomy, Walter Brueggemann says, is 
the theme is remember, and it's Moses' final speech as he tells God's people to not forget, to not, in the land of prosperity as they cross into the promised land, to forget all that God had shared with them. And that, that speech begins with the famous Shema passage about, you know, tie these things, write them on your wrists and on your forehead, and write them on the walls of your house, and remember, remember. And God reveals God's self at that point as, remember, I am the one who led you out of Egypt. I am the one who delivered you from slavery. God's own name is a storytelling of God's past faithfulness. And I, I think of this, this quote often, uh, never forget in the dark what God has shown you in the light. Never forget in the dark what God has shown you in the light. The, uh, the song ends, I'll just end by reading again these, these few last lines from Zechariah's song, which, which, you know, picks up on this light-dark imagery, which, again, is our theme for Advent. Um, we're, we're moving each week from this image of darkness to a dawn beginning to rise, eventually to Christmas, where we see the light of God in the person of Jesus. But verse 78, Zechariah ends the song, Because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun, or sometimes it's translated the dawn, sometimes it's translated capital D, dawn. It's talking about the person of Jesus. By which the dawn will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death. Again, the light imagery shining in shadows. And to guide our feet into the path of peace. That image of shining and guiding us and guiding our feet in the path of peace. I'll, I'll just end with one last image of, you know, if you, if you think of the nature of lamplight, and this shows up again and again in the scriptures, uh, a lamp can only light a couple, you know, a small space ahead of us at a time, right? And, uh, for those of you who, who are, are in this season of darkness, I hope this is encouraging to you. The nature of lamplight, the scriptures are called a lamp unto our feet, is we don't always get to see everything. If you're in this, walking through the, this period of darkness, perhaps you only have enough light to see a few steps ahead of you at a time. You don't see everything around you, and it can be so disorienting and terrifying and lonely. And yet, lamplight is enough to, to guide just a few steps at a time, which it turns out is enough for us to find the path and to find our way home. To find what Zechariah calls the path of peace, of shalom, of, of not just the absence of conflict and anxiety, but, but of justice and of peace. Friends, we, uh, we are in the season of darkness, and uh, our world, our state, and COVID numbers, all these things, uh, life is hard right now. And for many of you personally, 
uh, life is hard, and perhaps even the experience of God feels so far off. Uh, and yet, uh, the dawn of Christ is coming. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Uh, God, thank you. Thank you for your faithfulness. Uh, and I pray especially, we pray for those in our midst who, uh, whose current experience of you is one of absence. Lord, Lord, uh, light their way one step at a time. Remind them that you are tender and compassion and mercy towards them, even in this. Maybe precisely through this. And uh, bless us as you guide us through the path of peace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.